Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we return to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. For the first time in two months our heroes are about to set foot on dry land. Our narrator, Pierre Aranax, his servant Conseil and the redoubtable Ned Land have been granted permission to take a boat to the nearby island. What will they do there? Explore? Even try to escape? It's time to pull up a chair, relax and enjoy part six of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Chapter 20. A Few Days on Land I was much impressed on touching land. Ned Land tried the soil with his feet as if to take possession of it. However, it was only two months before that we had become, according to Captain Nemo, passengers on board the Nautilus, but in reality prisoners of its commander. In a few minutes we were within musket shot of the coast. The whole horizon was hidden behind a beautiful curtain of forests. Enormous trees, the trunks of which attained a height of 200 feet, were tied to each other by garlands of bindweed, real natural hammocks which a light breeze rocked. There were mimosas, figs, hibiscai, palm trees mingled together in profusion, and under the shelter of their verdant vault grew orchids, leguminous plants and ferns. But without noticing all these beautiful specimens of Papuan flora, the Canadian abandoned the agreeable for the useful. He discovered a cocoa tree, beat down some of the fruit, broke them, and we drunk the milk and ate the nut with a satisfaction that protested against the ordinary food on the Nautilus. "'Excellent,' said Ned Land. "'Exquisite,' replied Conseil. "'And I do not think,' said the Canadian, "'that he would object to our introducing a cargo of coconuts on board.' I do not think he would, but he would not taste them. So much the worse for him, said Conseil. And so much the better for us, replied Ned Land. There will be more for us. One word only, Master Land, I said to the harpooner, who was beginning to ravage another coconut tree. Coconuts are good things, but before filling the canoe with them, it would be wise to reconnoitre and see if the island does not produce some substance not less useful. Fresh vegetables would be welcome on board the Nautilus. Master is right, replied Conseil, and I propose to reserve three places in our vessel, one for fruits, the other for vegetables, and the third for the venison, of which I have not yet seen the smallest specimen. Conseil, we must not despair, said the Canadian. Let us continue, I returned, and lie in wait. Although the island seems uninhabited, it might still contain some individuals that would be less hard than we on the nature of game. Ho-ho, said Ned Land, moving his jaws significantly. Well, Ned, said Conseil. My word, returned the Canadian, I begin to understand the charms of anthropophagy. Ned, Ned, what are you saying? You, a man-eater, I should not feel safe with you, especially as I share your cabin. I might perhaps wake one day to find myself half-devoured. Friend Conseil, I like you much, but not enough to eat you unnecessarily. I would not trust you, replied Conseil, but enough. We must absolutely bring down some game to satisfy this cannibal, or else one of these fine mornings Master will find only pieces of his servant to serve him. While we were talking thus, we were penetrating the sombre arches of the forest, and for two hours we surveyed it in all directions. 
chance rewarded our search for eatable vegetables, and one of the most useful products of the tropical zones furnished us with precious food that we missed on board. I would speak of the breadfruit tree, very abundant on the island of Gilboa, and I remarked chiefly the variety destitute of seeds, which bears in Malaya the name of Rima. Ned Land knew these fruits well. He had already eaten many during his numerous voyages, and he knew how to prepare the eatable substance. Moreover, the sight of them excited him, and he could contain himself no longer. "'Master,' he said, "'I shall die if I do not taste a little of this breadfruit pie.' "'Taste it, friend Ned. Taste it as you want. We are here to make experiments. Make them.' "'It won't take long,' said the Canadian." and provided with a lentil, he lighted a fire of dead wood that crackled joyously. During this time, Conseil and I chose the best fruits of the breadfruit. Some had not then attained a sufficient degree of maturity, and their thick skin covered a white but rather fibrous pulp. Others, the greater number yellow and gelatinous, waited only to be picked. These fruits enclosed no kernel. Conseil brought a dozen to Ned Land, who placed them on a coal fire after having cut them in thick slices, and while doing this, repeating, "'You will see, master, how good this bread is, more so when one has been deprived of it so long. It is not even bread,' added he, "'but a delicate pastry. You have eaten none, master?' "'No, Ned.' Very well. Prepare yourself for a juicy thing. If you do not come for more, I am no longer the king of harpooners. After some minutes, the part of the fruit that was exposed to the fire was completely roasted. The interior looked like a white pasty, a sort of soft crumb, the flavour of which was like that of an artichoke. It must be confessed, this bread was excellent, and I ate of it with great relish. What time is it now? asked the Canadian. Two o'clock, at least,' replied Conseil. "'Oh, how time flies on firm ground,' sighed Ned Land. "'Let us be off,' replied Conseil. "'We returned through the forest and completed our collection by a raid upon the cabbage palms that we gathered from the tops of the trees, little beans that I recognised as the abru of the Malays and yams of a superior quality.' "'We were loaded when we reached the boat, but Ned Land did not find his provisions sufficient.' Fate, however, favoured us. Just as we were pushing off, he perceived several trees from twenty-five to thirty feet high, a species of palm tree. At last, at five o'clock in the evening, loaded with our riches, we quitted the shore, and half an hour after, we hailed the Nautilus. No one appeared on our arrival. The enormous iron-plated cylinder seemed deserted. The provisions embarked, I descended to my chamber, and after supper slept soundly. The next day, 6th of January, nothing new on board, not a sound inside, not a sign of life. The boat rested along the edge in the same place in which we had left it. We resolved to return to the island. Ned Land hoped to be more fortunate than on the day before with regard to the hunt, and wished to visit another part of the forest. At dawn we set off. The boat, carried on by the waves that flowed to shore, reached the island in a few minutes. We landed, and thinking that it was better to give in to the Canadian, we followed Ned Land, whose long limbs threatened to distance us. He wound up the coast towards the west, then, fording some torrents, he gained the high plain that was bordered with admirable forests. Some kingfishers were rambling along the watercourses, but they would not let themselves be approached. Their circumspection proved to me that these birds knew what to expect from bipeds of our species, and I concluded that if the island was not inhabited, at least human beings occasionally frequented it. After crossing a rather large prairie, we arrived at the skirts of a little wood that was enlivened by the songs and flight of a large number of birds. 
There are only birds, said Conseil. But they are eatable, replied the harpooner. I do not agree with you, friend Ned, for I only see parrots there. Friend Conseil, said Ned gravely, the parrot is like pheasant to those who have nothing else. And, I added, this bird, suitably prepared, is worth knife and fork. Indeed, under the thick foliage of this wood, a world of parrots were flying from branch to branch, only needing a careful education to speak the human language. For the moment they were chattering with parrots of all colours and grave cockatoos who seemed to meditate upon some philosophical problem, whilst brilliant red lorries passed like a piece of bunting carried away by the breeze, Papuans with the finest azure colours and in all a variety of winged things most charming to behold, but few eatable. However, a bird peculiar to these lands, and which has never passed the limits of the Arrow and Papuan Islands, was wanting in this collection, but fortune reserved it for me before long. After passing through a moderately thick copse, we found a plain obstructed with bushes. I saw then those magnificent birds, the disposition of whose long feathers obliges them to fly against the wind. Their undulating flight, graceful aerial curves, and the shading of their colours attracted and charmed one's looks. I had no trouble in recognising them. "'Birds of paradise!' I exclaimed. The Malays, who carry on a great trade in these birds with the Chinese, have several means that we could not employ for taking them. Sometimes they put snares on the top of high trees that the birds of paradise prefer to frequent. Sometimes they catch them with a viscous bird lime that paralyses their movements. They even go so far as to poison the fountains that the birds generally drink from. But we were obliged to fire at them during flight, which gave us few chances to bring them down, and indeed we vainly exhausted one half of our ammunition. About eleven o'clock in the morning, the first range of mountains that formed the centre of the island was traversed, and we had killed nothing. Hunger drove us on. The hunters had relied on the products of the chase, and they were wrong. Happily, Conseil, to his great surprise, made a double shot and secured breakfast. He brought down a white pigeon and a wood pigeon, which, cleverly plucked and suspended from a skewer, was roasted before a red fire of dead wood. While these interesting birds were cooking, Ned prepared the fruit of the bread tree. Then the wood pigeons were devoured to the bones and declared excellent. The nutmeg, with which they are in the habit of stuffing their crops, flavours their flesh and renders it delicious eating. Now, Ned, what do you miss now? Some four-footed game, Monsieur Aranax. All these pigeons are only side dishes and trifles, and until I have killed an animal with cutlets, I shall not be content. Nor I, Ned, if I do not catch a bird of paradise. Let us continue hunting, replied Conseil. Let us go towards the sea. We have arrived at the first declivities of the mountains, and I think we had better regain the region of forests. That was sensible advice, and was followed out. After walking for one hour, we had attained a forest of sago trees. Some inoffensive serpents glided away from us. The birds of paradise fled at our approach, and truly I despaired of getting near one when Conseil, who was walking in front, suddenly bent down, uttered a triumphal cry, and came back to me bringing a magnificent specimen. Ah, bravo, Conseil! A master is very good. No, my boy, you have made an excellent stroke. Uh, take one of those living birds and carry it in your hand. If master will examine it, he will see that I have not deserved great merit. Why, Conseil? Because this bird is as drunk as a quail. Drunk? 
Yes, sir. Drunk with the nutmegs that it devoured under the nutmeg tree under which I found it. See, friend Ned, see the monstrous effects of intemperance. By Jove, exclaimed the Canadian, because I have drunk gin for two months, you must needs reproach me. However, I examined the curious bird. Conseil was right. The bird, drunk with the juice, was quite powerless. It could not fly. It could hardly walk. This bird belonged to the most beautiful of the eight species that are found in Papua and in the neighbouring islands. It was the large emerald bird, the most rare kind. It measured three feet in length. Its head was comparatively small, its eyes placed near the opening of the beak and also small. But the shades of colour were beautiful, having a yellow beak, brown feet and claws, nut-coloured wings with purple tips, pale yellow at the back of the neck and head, and emerald colour at the throat, chestnut on the breast and belly. Two horned, downy nets rose from below the tail that prolonged the long, light feathers of admirable fineness, and they completed the whole of this marvellous bird that the natives have poetically named the Bird of the Sun. But if my wishes were satisfied by the possession of a bird of paradise, the Canadians were not yet. Happily, about two o'clock, Ned Land brought down a magnificent hog from the brood of those the natives call Bari Utang. The animal came in time for us to procure real quadruped meat, and he was well received. Ned Land was very proud of his shot. The hog, hit by the electric ball, fell stone dead. The Canadians skinned and cleaned it properly, after having taken half a dozen cutlets, destined to furnish us with a grilled repast in the evening. Then the hunt was resumed, which was still more marked by Ned and Conseil's exploits. Indeed, the two friends, beating the bushes, roused a herd of kangaroos that fled and bounded along on their elastic paws. But these animals did not take to flight so rapidly but what the electric capsule could stop their course. "'Ah, Professor!' cried Ned Land, who was carried away by the delights of the chase. "'What excellent game! And stewed, too! What a supply for the Nautilus! Two, three, five down! And to think that we shall eat that flesh, and that the idiots on board shall not have a crumb!' I think that, in the excess of his joy, the Canadian, if he had not talked so much, would have killed them all, but he contented himself with a single dozen of these interesting marsupians. These animals were small. They were a species of those kangaroo rabbits that live habitually in the hollows of trees and whose speed is extreme, but they are moderately fat and furnish at least estimable food. We were very satisfied with the results of the hunt. Happy Ned proposed to return to this enchanting island the next day, for he wished to depopulate it of all the eatable quadrupeds, but he had reckoned without his host. At six o'clock in the evening, we had regained the shore. Our boat was moored to the usual place. The Nautilus, like a long rock, emerged from the waves two miles from the beach. Ned Land, without waiting, occupied himself about the important dinner business. He understood all about cooking well. The Barry Utang, grilled on the coals, soon scented the air with a delicious odour. Indeed, dinner was excellent. Two wood pigeons completed this extraordinary menu. The sago pasty, the artocarpus bread, some mangoes, half a dozen pineapples, and the liquor fermented from some coconuts overjoyed us. Suppose we do not return to the Nautilus this evening, said Conseil. Suppose we never return, added Ned Land. Just then a stone fell at our feet and cut short the harpooner's proposition. Chapter 21. Captain Nemo's Thunderbolt We looked at the edge of the forest without rising, my hand stopping in the action of putting it to my mouth, Ned Land's completing its office. 
Stones do not fall from the sky, remarked Conseil, or they would merit the name Aerolites. A second stone, carefully aimed, that made a savoury pigeon's leg fall from Conseil's hand, gave still more weight to his observation. We all three arose, shouldered our guns, and were ready to reply to any attack. To the boat, I said, hurrying to the sea. It was indeed necessary to beat a retreat, for about twenty natives armed with bows and slings appeared on the skirts of a copse that masked the horizon to the right, hardly a hundred steps from us. Our boat was moored about sixty feet from us. The savages approached us, not running, but making hostile demonstrations. Stones and arrows fell thickly. Ned Land had not wished to leave his provisions, and in spite of his imminent danger, his pig on one side and kangaroos on the other, he went tolerably fast. In two minutes we were on the shore. To load the boat with provisions and arms, to rush it out to the sea and ship our oars, was the work of an instant. We had not gone two cable lengths when a hundred savages, howling and gesticulating, entered the water up to their waists. I watched to see if their apparition would attract some men from the Nautilus onto the platform, but no. The enormous machine lying off was absolutely deserted. Twenty minutes later, we were on board. The panels were open. After making the boat fast, we entered into the interior of the Nautilus. I descended to the drawing room, from whence I heard some chords. Captain Nemo was there, bending over his organ, and plunged in a musical ecstasy. Captain? He did not hear me. Captain, I said, touching his hand. He shuddered and turned round, said, "'Ah, it is you, Professor. Well, have you had a good hunt? Have you botanised successfully?' "'Yes, Captain, but we have unfortunately brought a troop of bipeds whose vicinity troubles me.' "'What bipeds?' "'Savages.' "'Savages?' he echoed ironically. "'So you were astonished, Professor, at having set foot on a strange land and finding... "'Savages. Savages?' Where are there not any? Besides, are they any worse than others, these whom you call savages? But, Captain, how many have you counted? A hundred, at least. Monsieur Aranax, replied Captain Nemo, placing his fingers on the organ stops, when all the natives of Papua are assembled on this shore, the Nautilus will have nothing to fear from their attacks. The captain's fingers were then running over the keys of the instrument, and I remarked that he touched only the black keys, which gave his melodies an essentially Scotch character. Soon he had forgotten my presence, and had plunged into a reverie that I did not disturb. I went up again onto the platform. Night had already fallen, for in this low latitude the sun sets rapidly and without twilight. I could only see the island indistinctly, but the numerous fires lighted on the beach showed that the natives did not think of leaving it. I was alone for several hours, sometimes thinking of the natives, but without any dread of them, for the imperturbable confidence of the captain was catching, sometimes forgetting them to admire the splendours of the night in the tropics. My remembrances went to France, in the train of those zodiacal stars that would shine in some hour's time. The moon shone in the midst of the constellations of the zenith. The night slipped away, Without any mischance, the islanders, frightened no doubt at the sight of a monster aground in the bay, the panels were open and would have offered an easy access to the interior of the Nautilus. At six o'clock in the morning on the 8th of January, I went up to the platform. The dawn was breaking. The island soon showed itself through the dissipating fogs, first the shore, then the summits. 
The natives were there, more numerous than on the day before, five or six hundred perhaps. Some of them, profiting by the low water, had come onto the coral at less than two cable lengths from the Nautilus. I distinguished them easily. They were true Papuans, with athletic figures, men of good race, large high foreheads, large but not broad and flat, and white teeth. Their woolly hair, with a reddish tinge, showed off on their black shining bodies like those of the Nubians. From the lobes of their ears, cut and distended, hung chaplets of bones. Most of these savages were naked. Amongst them I remarked some women, dressed from the hips to knees in quite a crinoline of herbs that sustained a vegetable waistband. Some chiefs had ornamented their necks with the crescent and collars of glass beads, red and white. Nearly all were armed with bows, arrows and shields, and carried on their shoulders a sort of net containing those round stones, which they cast from their slings with great skill. One of these chiefs, rather near to the Nautilus, examined it attentively. He was perhaps a maddo of high rank, for he was draped in a mat of banana leaves, notched round the edges and set off with brilliant colours. I could easily have knocked down this native, who was within a short length, but I thought that it was better to wait for real hostile demonstrations. During low water, the natives roamed around near the Nautilus, but were not troublesome. I heard them frequently repeat the word, Asai, and by their gestures I understood that they invited me to go on land, an invitation that I declined. So that on that day the boat did not push off, to the great displeasure of Master Land, who could not complete his provisions. This adroit Canadian employed his time in preparing the viands and meats that he had brought off the island. As for the savages, they returned to the shore about eleven o'clock in the morning, as soon as the coral tops began to disappear under the rising tide, but I saw their numbers had increased considerably on the shore. Perhaps they came from the neighbouring islands, or very likely from Papua. However, I had not seen a single native canoe. Having nothing better to do, I thought of dragging these beautiful limpid waters, under which I saw a profusion of shells, zoophytes, and marine plants. Moreover, it was the last day that the Nautilus would pass in these parts, if it float in open sea the next day, according to Captain Nemo's promise. I therefore called Conseil, who brought to me a light drag, very like those for the oyster fishery. Now, to work. For two hours we fished unceasingly, but without bringing up any rarities. The drag was filled with Midas ears, harps, malames, and particularly the most beautiful hammers I have ever seen. We also brought up some sea slugs, pearl oysters, and a dozen little turtles that were reserved for the pantry on board. But just when I expected it least, I put my hand on a wonder. I might say a natural deformity very rarely met with, Conseil was just dragging, and his net came up filled with diverse ordinary shells, when all at once he saw me plunge my arm quickly into the net to draw out a shell, and heard me utter a cry. "'What is the matter, sir?' he asked in surprise. "'Has Master been bitten?' "'Oh, no, my boy, but I would willingly have given a finger for my discovery.' "'What discovery?' "'This shell,' I said, holding up the object of my triumph. Conseil, instead of being rolled from right to left, this turns from left to right. Is it possible? Yes, my boy, it is a left shell. Shells are all right-handed, with rare exceptions, and when by chance their spiral is left, amateurs are ready to pay their weight in gold. 
Conseil and I were absorbed in the contemplation of our treasure, and I was promising myself to enrich the museum with it, when a stone, unfortunately thrown by a native, struck against and broke the precious object in Conseil's hand. I uttered a cry of despair. Conseil took up his gun and aimed at a savage who was poising his sling at ten yards from him. I would have stopped him, but his blow took effect and broke the bracelet of amulets which encircled the arm of the savage. "'Conseil!' cried I. "'Conseil!' "'Well, sir, do you not see that the cannibal has commenced the attack?' "'The shell is not worth the life of a man,' said I. "'Ah, the scoundrel,' replied Conseil. "'I would rather he had broken my shoulder.' Conseil was in earnest, but I was not of his opinion. However, the situation had changed some minutes before, and we had not perceived. A score of canoes surrounded the Nautilus. These canoes, scooped out of the trunk of a tree, long, narrow, well adapted for speed, were balanced by means of a long bamboo pole which floated on the water. They were managed by skilful, half-naked paddlers, and I watched their advance with some uneasiness. It was evident that these Papuans had already had dealings with the Europeans and knew their ships, but this long iron cylinder anchored in the bay without masts or chimneys. What could they think of it? Nothing good, for at first they kept at a respectful distance. However, seeing it motionless, by degrees they took courage and sought to familiarise themselves with it. Now, this familiarity was precisely what it was necessary to avoid. Our arms, which were noiseless, could only produce a moderate effect on the savages, who have little respect for aught but blustering things. The thunderbolt without the reverberations of thunder would frighten man but little, though the danger lies in the lightning, not in the noise." At this moment, the canoes approached the Nautilus, and a shower of arrows alighted on her. I went down to the saloon, but found no one there. I ventured to knock at the door that opened into the captain's room. "'Come in,' was the answer. I entered and found Captain Nemo deep in algebraical calculations of X and other quantities. "'I am disturbing you,' said I, for courtesy's sake. "'That is true, Monsieur Aronnax,' replied the captain. "'But I think you have serious reasons for wishing to see me.' "'Very grave ones. The natives are surrounding us in their canoes, and in a few minutes we shall certainly be attacked by many hundreds of savages.' "'Ah,' said Captain Nemo quietly, "'they are come with their canoes.' "'Yes, sir. Well, we must close the hatches.' "'Exactly. And I came to say to you, nothing can be more simple,' said Captain Nemo, and pressing an electric button, he transmitted an order to the ship's crew.' "'It is all done, sir,' said he, after some moments. "'The pinace is ready, and the hatches are closed. "'You do not fear, I imagine, that these gentlemen could stave in walls "'on which the balls of your frigate have had no effect?' "'No, Captain, but a danger still exists.' "'What is that, sir?' "'It is that tomorrow, at about this hour, "'we must open the hatches to renew the air of the Nautilus. "'Now, if at this moment the Papuans should occupy the platform,' I do not see how you could prevent them from entering. Then, sir, you suppose that they will board us? I am certain of it. Well, sir, let them come. I see no reason for hindering them. After all, these Papuans are poor creatures, and I am unwilling that my visit to the island should cost the life of a single one of these wretches. Upon that I was going away, but Captain Nemo detained me and asked me to sit down by him. He questioned me with interest about our excursions on shore and our hunting, and seemed not to understand the craving for meat that possessed the Canadian. Then the conversation turned on various subjects, and without being more communicative, Captain Nemo showed himself more amiable. Amongst other things, we happened to speak of the situation of the Nautilus, run aground in exactly the same spot in this strait where Dumont d'Orville was nearly lost. Apropos of this, 
This Dervy was one of your great sailors, said the captain to me, one of your most intelligent navigators. He is the Captain Cook of you Frenchmen. Unfortunate man of science, after having braved the icebergs of the South Pole, the coral reefs of Oceania, the cannibals of the Pacific, to perish miserably in a railway station. If this energetic man could have reflected during the last moments of his life, what must have been uppermost in his last thoughts, do you suppose? So speaking, Captain Nemo seemed moved, and his emotion gave me a better opinion of him. Then, chart in hand, we reviewed the travels of the French navigator, his voyages of circumnavigation, his double detention at the South Pole, which led to the discovery of Adelaide and Louis-Philippe, and fixing the hydrographical bearings of the principal islands of Oceania. "'That which your devis has done on the surface of the seas,' said Captain Nemo, "'that I have done under them, and more easily, more completely than he. "'The astrolabe and the Zalie, incessantly tossed about by the hurricane, "'could not be worth the nautilus, quiet repository of labour that she is, "'truly motionless in the midst of the waters. "'Tomorrow,' added the captain, rising, "'tomorrow, at twenty minutes to three p.m., "'the nautilus shall float and leave the Strait of Torres uninjured.' Having curtly pronounced these words, Captain Nemo bowed slightly. This was to dismiss me, and I went back to my room. There I found Conseil, who wished to know the result of my interview with the captain. "'My boy,' said I, "'when I feigned to believe that his Nautilus was threatened by the natives of Papua, the captain answered me very sarcastically. I have but one thing to say to you. Have confidence in him, and go to sleep in peace.' "'Have you no need of my services, sir?' "'No, my friend. What is Ned Land doing?' "'If you will excuse me, sir,' answered Conseil, "'friend Ned is busy making a kangaroo pie, which will be a marvel.' I remained alone and went to bed, but slept indifferently. I heard the noise of the savages who stamped on the platform, uttering deafening cries. The night passed thus, without disturbing the ordinary repose of the crew. The presence of these cannibals affected them no more than the soldiers of a masked battery care for the ants that crawl over its front.' At six in the morning I rose. The hatches had not been opened. The inner air was not renewed, but the reservoirs, filled ready for any emergency, were now resorted to, and discharged several cubic feet of oxygen into the exhausted atmosphere of the Nautilus. I worked in my room till noon, without having seen Captain Nemo, even for an instant. On board, no preparations for departure were visible. I waited still some time, then went to the large saloon. The clock marked half-past two. In ten minutes it would be high tide, and if Captain Nemo had not made a rash promise, the Nautilus would be immediately detached. If not, many months would pass ere she could leave her bed of coral. However, some warning vibrations began to be felt in the vessel. I heard the keel grating against the rough, calcareous bottom of the coral reef. At five and twenty minutes to three, Captain Nemo appeared in the saloon. "'We are going to start,' said he. "'Ah,' replied I, I have given the order to open the hatches. And the Papuans? The Papuans? answered Captain Nemo, slightly shrugging his shoulders. Will they not come inside the Nautilus? How? Only by leaping over the hatches you have opened. Monsieur Aranax, quietly answered Captain Nemo, they will not enter the hatches of the Nautilus in that way, even if they were open. I looked at the captain. You do not understand? said he. "'Hardly. Well, come, and you will see.' 
I directed my steps towards the central staircase. There, Ned Land and Conseil were slyly watching some of the ship's crew who were opening their hatches, while cries of rage and fearful vociferations resounded outside. The port lids were pulled down outside. Twenty horrible faces appeared, but the first native who placed his hand on the stair rail, struck from behind by some invisible force, I know not what, fled, uttering the most fearful cries and making the wildest contortions. Ten of his companions followed him. They met with the same fate. Conseil was in ecstasy. Ned Land, carried away by his violent instincts, rushed onto the staircase, but the moment he seized the rail with both hands, he, in his turn, was overthrown. "'I am struck by a thunderbolt,' said he, with an oath. This explained all. It was no rail, but a metallic cable charged with the electricity from the deck communicating with the platform. Whoever touched it felt a powerful shock, and this shock would have been mortal if Captain Nemo had discharged into the conductor the whole force of the current. It might truly be said that between his assailants and himself he had stretched a network of electricity which none could pass with impunity. Meanwhile, the exasperated Papuans had beaten a retreat, paralysed with terror. As for us, Half laughing, we consoled and rubbed the unfortunate Ned Land, who swore like one possessed. But at this moment, the Nautilus, raised by the last waves of the tide, quitted her coral bed exactly at the fortieth minute fixed by the captain. Her screws swept the waters slowly and majestically. Her speed increased gradually, and sailing on the surface of the ocean, she quitted safe and sound the dangerous passes of the Straits of Torres. Chapter 22. Egri Somnia. The following day, 10th of January, the Nautilus continued her course between two seas, but with such remarkable speed that I could not estimate it at less than 35 miles an hour. The rapidity of her screw was such that I could neither follow nor count its revolutions. When I reflected that this marvellous electric agent, after having afforded motion, heat and light to the Nautilus, still protected her from outward attack and transformed her into an arc of safety which no profane hand might touch without being thunderstricken, my admiration was unbounded, and from the structure it extended to the engineer who had called it into existence. Our course was directed to the west, and on the 11th of January we doubled Cape Wessel, situated in 135 degrees longitude and 10 degrees south latitude, which forms the east point of the Gulf of Carpentaria. The reefs were still numerous but more equalised, and marked on the chart with extreme precision. The Nautilus easily avoided the breakers of money to port and the Victoria reefs to starboard, placed at 130 degrees longitude and on the 10th parallel, which we strictly followed. On the 13th of January, Captain Nemo arrived in the Sea of Timor and recognised the island of that name in 122 degrees longitude. From this point, the direction of the Nautilus inclined towards the southwest. Her head was set for the Indian Ocean. Where would the fancy of Captain Nemo carry us next? Would he return to the coast of Asia, or would he approach again the shores of Europe? Improbable conjectures both to a man who fled from inhabited continents. Then would he descend to the south? Was he going to double the Cape of Good Hope, then Good Horn, and finally go as far as the Antarctic Pole? Would he come back at last to the Pacific, where his Nautilus could sail free and independently? Time would show. During this period of the voyage, Captain Nemo made some interesting experiments on the varied temperature of the sea in different beds. Under ordinary conditions, these observations are made by means of rather complicated instruments and with somewhat doubtful results, by means of thermometrical sounding leads, the glasses often breaking under the pressure of the water, or an apparatus grounded on the variations of the resistance of metals to the electric currents. Results so obtained could not be correctly calculated. 
On the contrary, Captain Nemo went himself to test the temperature in the depths of the sea, and his thermometer, placed in communication with the different sheets of water, gave him the required degree immediately and accurately. It was thus that, either by overloading her reservoirs, or by descending obliquely by means of her inclined planes, the Nautilus successfully attained the depth of three, four, five, seven, nine, and ten thousand yards, and the definite result of this experience was that the sea preserved an average temperature of four degrees and a half at a depth of five thousand fathoms under all latitudes. On the 16th of January, the Nautilus seemed becalmed only a few yards beneath the surface of the waters. Her electric apparatus remained inactive, and her motionless screw left her to drift at the mercy of the currents. I suppose that the crew was occupied with interior repairs rendered necessary by the violence of the mechanical movements of the machine. My companions and I then witnessed a curious spectacle. The hatchings of the saloon were open, and as the beacon light of the Nautilus was not in action, a dim obscurity reigned in the midst of the waters. I observed the state of the sea under these conditions, and the largest fish appeared to me no more than scarcely defined shadows. When the Nautilus found herself suddenly transported into full light, I thought at first that the beacon had been lighted and was casting its electric radiance into the liquid mass. I was mistaken and after a rapid survey perceived my error. The Nautilus floated in the midst of a phosphorescent bed, which in this obscurity became quite dazzling. It was produced by myriads of luminous animalculae, whose brilliancy was increased as they glided over the metallic hull of the vessel. I was surprised by lightning in the midst of these luminous sheets, as though they had been rivulets of lead melted in an ardent furnace, or metallic masses brought to a white heat, so that, by force of contrast, certain portions of light appeared to cast a shade in the midst of the general ignition, from which all shade seemed banished. No, this was not the calm irradiation of our ordinary lightning. There was unusual life and vigour. This was truly living light. In reality, it was an infinite agglomeration of coloured infusoria, of veritable globules of jelly, provided with a thread-like tentacle, and of which as many as 25,000 have been counted in less than two cubic half-inches of water. During several hours, the Nautilus floated in these brilliant waves, and our admiration increased as we watched the marine monsters disporting themselves like salamanders. I saw there, in the midst of this fire that burns, not the swift and elegant porpoise, the indefatigable clown of the ocean, and some swordfish ten feet long, those prophetic heralds of the hurricane, whose formidable sword would now and then strike the glass of the saloon. Then appeared the smaller fish, the ballista, the leaping mackerel, wolf thorntails, and a hundred others which strike the luminous atmosphere as they swarmed. This dazzling spectacle was enchanting. Perhaps some atmospheric condition increased the intensity of the phenomenon. Perhaps some storm agitated the surface of the waves. But at this depth of some yards, the Nautilus was unmoved by its fury and reposed peacefully in still water. So we progressed, incessantly charmed by some new marvel. The days passed rapidly away and I took no account of them. Ned, according to habit, tried to vary the diet on board. Like snails, we were fixed to our shells, and I declare it is easy to live a snail's life. Thus, this life seemed easy and natural, and we thought no longer of the life we led on land, but something happened to recall us to the strangeness of our situation. On the 18th of January, the Nautilus was in 105 degrees longitude and 15 degrees south latitude. The weather was threatening, the sea rough and rolling, there was a strong east wind. The barometer, which had been going down for some days, foreboded a coming storm. 
I went up onto the platform just as the second lieutenant was taking the measure of the horary angles and waited, according to habit, till the daily phrase was said, but on this day it was exchanged for another phrase, not less incomprehensible. Almost directly, I saw Captain Nemo appear with a glass looking towards the horizon. For some minutes he was immovable, without taking his eye off the point of observation. Then he lowered his glass and exchanged a few words with his lieutenant. The latter seemed to be a victim to some emotion that he tried in vain to repress. Captain Nemo, having more command over himself, was cool. He seemed, too, to be making some objections to which the lieutenant replied in formal assurances. At least I concluded so by the difference of their tones and gestures. For myself, I had looked carefully in the direction indicated without seeing anything. The sky and water were lost in the clear line of the horizon. However, Captain Nemo walked from one end of the platform to the other, without looking at me, perhaps without seeing me. His step was firm, but less regular than mine. He stepped sometimes, crossed his arms, and observed the sea. What could he be looking for on that immense expanse? The Nautilus was then some hundreds of miles from the nearest coast. The lieutenant had taken up the glass and examined the horizon steadfastly, going and coming, stamping his foot and showing more nervous agitation than his superior officer. Besides, this mystery must necessarily be solved, and before long, for upon an order from Captain Nemo, the engine, increasing its propelling power, made the screw turn more rapidly. Just then the lieutenant drew the captain's attention again. The latter stopped walking and directed his glass towards the place indicated. He looked long. I felt very much puzzled and descended to the drawing-room and took out an excellent telescope that I generally used. Then, leaning on the cage of the watchlight that jutted out from the front of the platform, set myself to look over all the line of the sky and sea. But my eye was no sooner applied to the glass than it was quickly snatched out of my hands. I turned around. Captain Nemo was before me, but I did not know him. His face was transfigured, his eyes flashed sullenly, his teeth were set, his stiff body clenched fists and head shrunk between his shoulders, betrayed the violent agitation that pervaded his whole frame. He did not move. My glass, fallen from his hands, had rolled at his feet. Had I unwittingly provoked this fit of anger? Did this incomprehensible person imagine that I had discovered some forbidden secret? No, I was not the object of his hatred, for he was not looking at me. His eye was steadily fixed upon the impenetrable point on the horizon. At last, Captain Nemo recovered himself. His agitation subsided. He addressed some words in a foreign language to his lieutenant, then turned to me. Monsieur Aranax, he said in a rather imperious tone, I require you to keep one of the conditions that bind you to me. What is it, Captain? You must be confined, with your companions, until I think fit to release you. You are the master, I replied, looking steadily at him. But may I ask you one question? None, sir. There was no resisting this imperious command. It would have been useless. I went down to the cabin occupied by Ned Land and Conseil, and told them the captain's determination. You may judge how this communication was received by the Canadian. But there was not time for altercation. Four of the crew waited at the door and conducted us to that cell where we had passed our first night on board the Nautilus. Ned Land would have remonstrated, but the door was shut upon him. "'Will Master tell me what this means?' asked Conseil. I told my companions what had passed. They were as much astonished as I, and equally at a loss as to how to account for it. 
Meanwhile, I was absorbed in my own reflections and could think of nothing but the strange fear depicted in the captain's countenance. I was utterly at a loss to account for it when my cogitations were disturbed by these words from Ned Land. Hello, breakfast is ready. And indeed, the table was laid. Evidently, Captain Nemo had given this order at the same time that he had hastened the speed of the Nautilus. Will Master permit me to make a recommendation? asked Conseil. Yes, my boy. Well, it is that Master breakfasts. It is prudent, for we do not know what may happen. You are right, Conseil. Unfortunately, said Ned Land, they have only given us the ship's fare. Friend Ned, asked Conseil, what would you have said if the breakfast had been entirely forgotten? This argument cut short the harpooner's recriminations. We sat down to table. The meal was eaten in silence. Just then, the luminous globe that lighted the cell went out and left us in total darkness. Ned Land was soon asleep, and what astonished me was that Conseil went off into a heavy slumber. I was thinking what could have caused his irresistible drowsiness when I felt my brain becoming stupefied. In spite of my efforts to keep my eyes open, they would close. A painful suspicion seized me. Evidently soporific substances had been mixed in with the food we had just taken. Imprisonment was not enough to conceal Captain Nemo's projects from us. Sleep was more necessary. I then heard the panels shut. The undulations of the sea, which caused a slight rolling motion, ceased. Had the Nautilus quitted the surface of the ocean? Had it gone back to the motionless bed of water? I tried to resist sleep. It was impossible. My breathing grew weak. I felt a mortal cold freeze my stiffened and half-paralysed limbs. My eyelids, like leaden caps, fell over my eyes. I could not raise them. A morbid sleep, full of hallucinations, bereft me of my being. Then the visions disappeared and left me in complete insensibility. Chapter 23 The Coral Kingdom The next day I woke with my head singularly clear. To my great surprise, I was in my own room. My companions, no doubt, had been reinstated in their cabin without having perceived it any more than I. Of what had passed during the night, they were as ignorant as I was, and to penetrate this mystery... I only reckoned upon the chances of the future. I then thought of quitting my room. Was I free again, or a prisoner? Quite free. I opened the door, went to the half-deck, went up the central stairs. The panels, shut the evening before, were open. I went on to the platform. Ned Land and Conseil waited there for me. I questioned them. They knew nothing. Lost in a heavy sleep in which they had been totally unconscious, they had been astonished at finding themselves in their own cabin. As for the Nautilus... It seemed quiet and mysterious as ever. It floated on the surface of the waves at a moderate pace. Nothing seemed changed on board. The second lieutenant then came up onto the platform and gave the usual order below. As for Captain Nemo, he did not appear. Of the people on board, I only saw the impassive steward who served me with his usual dumb regularity. About two o'clock I was in the drawing-room, busied in arranging my notes, when the captain opened the door and appeared. I bowed. He made a slight inclination in return, without speaking. I resumed my work, hoping that he would perhaps give me some explanation of the events of the preceding night. He made none. I looked at him. He seemed fatigued. His heavy eyes had not been refreshed by sleep. His face looked very sorrowful. He walked to and fro, sat down, and got up again. Took a chance book, put it down, consulted his instruments without taking his habitual notes, and seemed restless and uneasy. 
At last he came up to me and said, "'Are you a doctor, Monsieur Aronnax?' I so little expected such a question that I stared some time at him without answering. "'Are you a doctor?' he repeated. "'Several of your colleagues have studied medicine.' "'Well,' said I, "'I am a doctor and resident surgeon to the hospital. I practised several years before entering the museum.' "'Very well, sir.' My answer had evidently satisfied the captain, but not knowing what he would say next, I waited for other questions, reserving my answers according to circumstances. "'Monsieur Aronnax, will you consent to prescribe for one of my men?' he asked. "'Is he ill?' "'Yes.' "'I am ready to follow you. Come, then.' I own my heartbeat. I do not know why. I saw certain connection between the illness of one of the crew and the events of the day before, and this mystery interested me at least as much as the sick man. Captain Nemo conducted me to the poop of the Nautilus and took me into a cabin situated near the sailors' quarters. There, on a bed, lay a man of about forty years of age, with a resolute expression of countenance, a true type of an Anglo-Saxon. I leant over him. He was not only ill, he was wounded. His head, swathed in bandages, covered with blood, lay on a pillow. I undid the bandages, and the wounded man looked at me with his large eyes and gave no sign of pain as I did it. It was a horrible wound. The skull, shattered by some deadly weapon, left the brain exposed, which was much injured. Clots of blood had formed in the bruised and broken mass, in colour like the dregs of wine. There was both contusion and suffusion of the brain. His breathing was slow, and some spasmodic movements of the muscles agitated his face. I felt his pulse. It was intermittent. The extremities of the body were growing cold already, and I saw death must inevitably ensue. After dressing the unfortunate man's wounds, I readjusted the bandages on his head and turned to Captain Nemo. "'What caused this wound?' I asked. "'What does it signify?' he replied evasively. "'A shock has broken one of the levers of the engine, which struck myself. But your opinion as to his state?' I hesitated before giving it. "'You may speak,' said the captain. "'This man does not understand French.' I gave a last look at the wounded man. "'He will be dead in two hours. "'Can nothing save him?' "'Nothing.' Captain Nemo's hand contracted and some tears glistened in his eyes, which I thought incapable of shedding any. For some moments I still watched the dying man whose life ebbed slowly. His pallor increased under the electric light that was shed over his deathbed. I looked at his intelligent forehead, furrowed with premature wrinkles, produced probably by misfortune and sorrow. I tried to learn the secret of his life from the last words that escaped his lips. "'You can go now, Monsieur Aronnax,' said the captain. I left him in the dying man's cabin, and returned to my room much affected by this scene. During the whole day I was haunted by uncomfortable suspicions, and at night I slept badly.' and between my broken dreams I fancied I heard distant sighs like the notes of a funeral psalm. Were they the prayers of the dead, murmured in that language that I could not understand? The next morning I went on to the bridge. Captain Nemo was there before me. As soon as he perceived me, he came to me. Professor, will it be convenient to you to make a submarine excursion today? With my companions? I asked. If they like. We obey your orders, Captain. "'Will you be so good, then, as to put on your cork jackets?' "'It was not a question of dead or dying. "'I rejoined Ned Land and Conseil and told them of Captain Nemo's proposition. "'Conseil hastened to accept it, and this time the Canadian seemed quite willing to follow our example. 
It was eight o'clock in the morning. At half-past eight, we were equipped for this new excursion and provided with two contrivances for light and breathing. The double door was open, and accompanied by Captain Nemo, who was followed by a dozen of the crew, we set foot at a depth of about thirty feet on the solid bottom on which the Nautilus rested. A slight declivity ended in an uneven bottom at fifteen fathoms depth. This bottom differed entirely from the one I had visited on my first excursion under the waters of the Pacific Ocean. Here there was no fine sand, no submarine prairies, no sea forest. I immediately recognised that marvellous region in which, on that day, the captain did the honours to us. It was the Coral Kingdom. The light produced a thousand charming varieties, playing in the midst of the branches that were so vividly coloured. I seemed to see the membranous and cylindrical tubes tremble beneath the undulation of the waters. I was tempted to gather their fresh petals, ornamented with delicate tentacles, some just blown, the others budding, while a small fish, swimming swiftly, touched them slightly, like flights of birds. But if my hand approached these living flowers, these animated, sensitive plants, the whole colony took alarm. The white petals re-entered their red cases, the flowers faded as I looked, and the bush changed into a block of stony knobs. Chance had thrown me just by the most precious specimens of the zoophyte. This coral was more valuable than that found in the Mediterranean, on the coasts of France, Italy and Barbary. Its tints justified the poetical names of flower of blood and froth of blood that trade has given its most beautiful productions. Coral is sold for £20 per ounce, and in this place the watery beds would make the fortunes of a company of coral divers. This precious matter, often confused with other polypi, formed then the inextricable plots called Macchiota, and on which I noticed several beautiful specimens of pink coral. But soon the bushes contract and the arborizations increase. Real petrified thickets, long joints of fantastic architecture were disclosed before us. Captain Nemo placed himself under a dark gallery, where by a slight declivity we reached a depth of a hundred yards. The light from our lamps produced sometimes magical effects, following the rough outlines of the natural arches and pendants disposed like lustres that were tipped with points of fire. At last, after walking two hours, we had attained a depth of about 300 yards, that is to say, the extreme limit on which coral begins to form. But there was no isolated bush nor modest brushwood at the bottom of the lofty trees. It was an immense forest of large mineral vegetations, enormous petrified trees united by garlands of elegant sea bindweed, all adorned with clouds and reflections. We passed freely under their high branches, lost in the shade of the waves. Captain Nemo had stopped. I and my companions halted, and turning around, I saw his men were forming a semicircle around their chief. Watching attentively, I observed that four of them carried on their shoulders an object of an oblong shape. We occupied in this place the centre of a vast glade surrounded by the lofty foliage of the submarine forest. Our lamps threw over this place a sort of clear twilight that singularly elongated the shadows on the ground. At the end of the glade, the darkness increased and was only relieved by little sparks reflected by the points of coral. Ned Land and Conseil were near me. We watched, and I thought I was going to witness a strange scene. On observing the ground, I saw that it was raised in certain places by slight excrescences encrusted with limey deposits, and disposed with a regularity that betrayed the hand of man. In the midst of the glade, on a pedestal of rocks roughly piled up, stood a cross of coral that extended its long arms that one might have thought were made of petrified blood. 
Upon a sign from Captain Nemo, one of the men advanced, and at some feet from the cross he began to dig a hole with a pickaxe that he took from his belt. I understood all. This glade was a cemetery, this hole a tomb, this oblong object the body of the man who had died in the night. The captain and his men had come to bury their companion in this general resting place at the bottom of this inaccessible ocean. The grave was being dug slowly. The fish fled on all sides while their retreat was being thus disturbed. I heard the strokes of the pickaxe, which sparkled when it hit upon some flint lost at the bottom of the waters. The hole was soon large and deep enough to receive the body. Then the bearers approached. The body, enveloped in a tissue of white linen, was lowered into the damp grave. Captain Nemo, with his arms crossed on his breast, and all the friends of him who had loved them, knelt in prayer. The grave was then filled in with the rubbish taken from the ground, which formed a slight mound. When this was done, Captain Nemo and his men rose. Then, approaching the grave, they knelt again, and all extended their hands in a sign of a last adieu. Then the funeral procession returned to the Nautilus, passing under the arches of the forest, in the midst of thickets, along the coral bushes, and still on the ascent. At last the light of the ship appeared, and its luminous track guided us to the Nautilus. At one o'clock we had returned. As soon as I had changed my clothes I went up onto the platform, and, a prey to conflicting emotions, I sat down near the binnacle. Captain Nemo joined me. I rose and said to him, So, as I said he would, this man died in the night? Yes, Monsieur Aranax. And he rests now near his companions in the Coral Cemetery. Yes, forgotten by all else, but not by us. We dug the grave, and the polypi undertake to seal our dead for eternity. And burying his face quickly in his hands, he tried in vain to suppress a sob. Then he added, Our peaceful cemetery is there, some hundred feet below the surface of the waves. Your dead sleep quietly, at least, Captain, out of the reach of sharks. Yes, sir, of sharks and men, gravely replied the Captain. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part six of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. If you did enjoy it, then please consider supporting The Well Told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. I'll be back next week with part seven of the story. I hope you can join me.